millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's The Wonky Show. Uh, we're almost back. Clearing, student numbers, cost of living, conservative leadership, culture wars, the NSS, the B3 Bear, and the TEF. It's all coming up. Who wants the University of Oxford and Cambridge to interview every single person in the UK that got three A stars in a particular year? I'm not sure when those universities were going to find time to do any undergraduate teaching while they're doing that, but maybe it'll all shake down together. She wants once again to resurrect the PQA, PQO conversation. It is truly the stupid idea that refuses to die in higher education. Show your weekly way to this week's higher education news, policy, and analysis. I'm your host, Jim Dickinson, and this week in our pre season special, we're going to take a quick look back at the summer just gone to get you up to speed. And to do that, two cracking colleagues from Team Wonky. Uh, in Exeter, Sunday Blake is associate editor at Wonky. Sunday, your highlight of the summer? I went to Vienna and I went to the Karl Marx Hof, which is the largest social housing uh, unit in Europe. Uh, it spans about three kilometres and it has its own theatre and its own school and it was it was everything that I thought it would be. Wow, this means nothing to me, Arviana. And uh, somewhere in the southwest, David Kernahan is acting editor at Wonky. DK, your highlight of the summer. Well, uh, live music and festivals are back for the first time in three years, so I've been uh, very much appreciating the chance to play at some local festivals. Oh, sounds fantastic. (laughs) Good. So uh, we start this week with clearing and student numbers. After two years of examining shambles, the sector was hoping for a bit more stability this year. DK, did it get it? Well, in terms of the A-level results and the Scottish higher results, first of all, uh, there were... It was promised that it would split the difference between 2021, that incredible bumper year in which seemingly everybody got A-stars, and... 2019, the last of what we call the normal years where grades were precisely allocated according to a curve with a couple of tweaks around the edges. We were a lot closer to 2021 than 2019. I think this surprised a few people, but um, institutions have been appraised and we've seen a return pretty much to normal clearing. There's been a lot more students around, which have meant there's been a lot more people in clearing. Um, We have taken a dive on the site into which institutions are involved in the peak days of clearing that weekend after the results. Seems to be your intermediate section, your kind of um, middle tariff uh, providers, the kind of place that maybe a few years ago would have been people's first choice, but these days would largely be an insurance choice. Uh, The big growth in... um, the big growth at the high tariff providers appears to have paused. They've had two bumper years. They're jammed, absolutely packed to the rafters, and they're having to pause a little bit. But a little anomaly I've spotted, and there will be a piece on the site by the time this goes out, hopefully, is that it's been a huge increase in postgraduate taught entry. This is both international students and students from the UK. 
Mm. Yes, well, we'll come to that. Just just before I bring Sunday in, DK, can it, this, obviously the week of clearing, the week of the kind of main results, uh, at least in England and, and, and Wales, that, that, that it, that it felt like the tone of the coverage, even in comparison to perhaps a kind of pre-pandemic year, was, was different. This sense that um, students weren't going to get what they wanted and universities were full and so on. But that wasn't really the whole of the story, was it? It absolutely was not. Um, certainly in the weeks before A-level results, we got quite a few horror stories. Um, certain parts of the press were playing up the idea that the kind of people they think of as your natural higher education entrance, your um, UK domicile students with decent exam results from, I mean, let's be blunt about this, from good homes. Um, and there was a lot of articles, a lot of hand-wringing about the fact they're not going to get the place they desired at the lower end of the Russell Group institution of their choice. Um, that didn't quite turn up. Those kind of students are still getting into those kind of places. It's not been the free-for-all that we've had in 2020 and 2021, where those kind of institutions were massively expanding, and anybody with a um, I hope in hell of um, getting in, basically uh, got into those providers. We are back to normal service. And this obviously has raised the ire of the usual bunch of columnists who are upset that people they know had their kids not get into the precise university and course that they wanted. But this is the way the capacity of the sector unfortunately works. It is difficult for young people. I'm not saying it's not for a second, but we cannot keep expanding these institutions forever. Something has to give somewhere. So 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 if too many people I mean bluntly, if too many people apply to the Russell Group, there's more of a crunch. For those people, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. If you're going to apply to a selected provider, um, actually where it is competitive to get in and uh, the grades asked for are going to be high, surprise, surprise, it's going to be difficult to get in and grades are going to be high. If you don't quite get the grades, unlike in the last couple of years where that was uh, largely mitigated by the fact grades went up anyway, especially in private schools, you've not had that effect this year. It is a return to normal service. Mm. Now, now, Sunday, you wrote up a spirited defence of clearing. Just explain what you were getting at. When clearing happens, right, it's proper manic, okay? And I've worked in a clear, I've worked on the phones in clearing. And I remember, I'm not going to say which institution it was, but I remember at one point in the day, someone came in and said, just accept everyone. Um because they needed to get the numbers up. What happened at that institution, which was quite funny, is that they had so many students come in that the university had to pay for the students to live in a Premier Inn for the year. Um, but I, I think what I was trying to say was that there's a lot of negativity around clearing for a lot of reasons, like retention rates, bums on seats exercise and stuff like that. And I think that if a university has good information advice and guidance post enrollment then then though you know the, the kind of negative aspects or the, the negative myths around clearing can like sort of easily be unpicked um I think that I think my main argument was that actually a lot of people go to university not really knowing what they want to do and a lot of people's career ambitions change or interests change at university. I, I yes, think- yes, yes. And so clearing can become a moment where in, in the kind of, in the, in the teeth of what, what some people would regard as failure, people can then make different choices or kind of alter their, 
their path. And 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 I guess I mean you know it's it's interesting you say that one of the one of the conversations I've been having with new student union officers all summer is just how difficult it is to get off the conveyor belt once you're on it. You know, there's a, there's a set of expectations when you leave school. There's a set of expectations that have been kind of drummed into you by your school or your parents or whatever in a lot of cases. And making different choices or realising you've made the wrong choice is really bloody hard for a lot of people. Right, exactly. And I think in, in my uh, article, if I can think back to it, um, I was sort of arguing for a more like wraparound holistic support for students where where you know they may not be at sort of a carefully picked right institution or they may not have chosen like the exact subject but if but that there are ways in which we can sort of like navigate like the choices that they have if that makes sense yeah, yeah. of course all of that is quite tricky dk isn't it because a simplistic answer to that set of questions is okay stick everyone into clearing, which is where we almost were on on the kind of PQO proposal. Indeed, that was the case. One of the the interesting things I spotted in our preparation for clearing is the huge range of tariff points that students, even on quite competitive courses to get in, actually ended up having. Uh, There's a little tool on the site if you go back, or it'll be in the show notes, and you can have a look at a course that you're interested in and see the range of student uh, backgrounds, basically, is what you're seeing. Um, even if you don't get the course that you want on um, on on that A-level results uh, day, there are other ways in, there are other approaches to higher education study if that is what you want. Uh, we have, as we'll get to later in the podcast, we've seen the worlds of PQA and PQO re-emerge once again in the conservative leadership uh, contest, the thinking around this among admissions professionals is that students, applicants, they benefit from a long sustained engagement with the provider before they get to the provider. And you see the the, the research of the likes of Michelle Morgan, um, Debbie Holly, the, um, those kind of people who are saying, if you start talking to the students, then if you start finding out what they're expecting, what they need, what they're interested in, where they think their weaknesses are, they're going to have a better experience. Um, entry through clearing means that you don't get that. You're just kind of basically jumping in mm-hmm. unknown on um on day one and in the panic of clearing you might not have read through all the module descriptions and you might be quite surprised perhaps unpleasantly by what you're actually studying and how that compares <laughs> to the same course title somewhere yeah. else mm. interesting yeah so, so that you know that's that, that sense that you might be able to kind of intervene to uh kind of correct for that and improve that uh, that sunday was talking about is very interesting now as ever lots of analysis and whizzy graphs and stuff to play with on the site and obviously in a, in a few weeks we'll see just how close to landing the jumbo jet on the post-it note the sector got. Now, let's see who's been blogging for us this week. I'm Hugh Jones, and I curate the Higher Education Postcard series. This is based on a collection of physical postcards which I've put together, all showing a university or another higher education-related scene. I post a card daily on Twitter. Search for the hashtag Higher Education Postcard or follow me on at Hugh J Consulting and weekly on Wonky, in a blog which the team are kind enough to publish. Picture postcards with a mass communication medium of their day. I think it's a neat way to get an insight into the past and also to help tell the story of how our universities and colleges got to be what they are. The blogs aren't original research. I pull together material from universities' own accounts and other web sources. 
but I also tried to add some contemporaneous voices, often from the British newspaper archive. It's about trying to see higher education in its changing context. This week's card is a lovely one from the 1950s. It's great when there's a message on the back, and this one seems to be from a student to their folks back home. The scene shows Selwyn College, Cambridge, and the blog gives me a chance to say a bit about the college's foundation and all about the Selwyn after whom it is named, George Augustus Selwyn, Bishop of New Zealand and Litchfield. I hope you enjoy the blog. Now, next up this week, uh, inflation keeps climbing and there's a bona fide cost of living crisis on Sunday. How is the sector responding? Um, I don't think there, there's much response at all, actually. There's some, I'm, I'm, I'm getting a little bit worried because I've only really seen one student union officer talk about it, one student union, and I haven't seen much from universities either. I think it all seems quite business as, as usual. Um, yeah, I, I mean, Freshers' Week seems to be going ahead with £25 wristbands and <laughs> everything else going on. Um, there doesn't seem to be any sort of like conversations going around around rent. I mean, if there are, then I've missed them and I apologise. Um, the, you know, there's a lot of um, issues that students are facing. I'm seeing sort of a lot of people come into Twitter or come into different forums saying that, you know, they've signed on a house at a set uh, rent and bills rate and now their landlord has gone back and is saying that they're going to move it up and they can't um, afford to do that. And then centrally, there's a lot of issues with student finance because obviously the means tested is still is still set, I think, 25 grand. Now, you could be, like, if you look at, if you look at that wage or that household income in real terms against inflation, the the set the min the, the maximum maintenance grant needs to go up to a higher level because of the increased outgoings that those households will have um but obviously that hasn't happened yet or i don't think there's any movement to have that happen at all so yeah not haven't responded much yeah they haven't really responded I mean, certainly this past weekend, DK, obviously, you know, that new energy price cap that we got, I think it was on Friday, and mm -hmm. then the complete lack of a government response, you know, no minister could be found, um, no real response from the government. That has all felt quite surreal, because that's really high drama. But I mean, certainly, you know, I, I to some extent share Sunday's view. It, it's hard to see what universities and their students' unions are doing about it so far. And my guess is there's quite a bit going on under the surface, but under the surface is different to kind of reassuring parents and being clear with students about the kind of support they might be able to get. So uh, we've actually done some uh, surveys on this. Um, the Wonky Community Survey asked a bunch of questions on the uh, preparations for the cost of living crisis, and it turns out that a little over 20% of our respondents who are from all parts of the sector, all walks of life, but I don't claim that it's a selective group, uh, are feel that their organisation is well prepared for the cost of living crisis. Um, only 17% believe that their organisation has got the right plans or strategy in place to support students struggling with living costs. So this is something that is deeply 
um, is deeply concerning me. It reminds me of the start of term in September 2020. We could all see the problems coming. We all knew what was going to happen. We were writing about it on Wonky in August, and then we just had to sit there and watch it play out. Um, it does feel to me very strange that there's nobody... Um, uh, um, thinking nationally on this. We've heard very little from NUS. We've heard very little from Universities UK. We've heard nothing from the Office for Students, nothing whatsoever. And obviously, the government is largely missing in action. Uh, so we are spared the insights that Andrea Jenkins would have brought to the situation. It just feels like everybody's but, 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 waiting DK, for somebody else to make a move. Also, I mean, I'd be quite surprised, you know, in the pandemic, quite often we wouldn't hear anything from a Westminster politician or the Office for Students, but we would hear maybe from Hefku or from the Welsh Minister and same in mm, Scotland. Mm -hmm. Actually, apart from a kind of really small little hardship fund for Northern Irish students that are staying in Northern Ireland, we haven't heard anything from the nations either this time round. <laughs> We haven't. All of this is linked to, I think, um, Barnett consequentials. If uh, England starts spending a bunch of money on education, that unlocks um, a comparative amount of money that will flow to the nations and they will be able to spend it. Um, I just don't think for a number of reasons that the money is there anywhere at the moment. There's not, a, there's not a lot of money in the system. The only source at the moment of substantial additional income for um, providers is either postgraduate taught recruitment, which we've seen massively, massively grow over the last year, or um, borrowing. Yeah. Now, the availability of uh, borrowing, I suspect, is going to start um, drying up. There's just not enough around to um, invest. We are entering a recession. People are going to be more cautious about their investments. They might not want to be speculating on the continued growth of higher education, given the, the, the noise coming out of the government. And everything, I mean, um, doing literally everything is getting more expensive. So you've got a crisis being faced by students and, lest we forget, a crisis being faced by staff, particularly early career staff, uh, who often are also uh, postgraduate students. Uh, we have not got any money in the, in the higher education system or in the education budgets overall in any of the four nations to support them. It really is a perfect storm. Yes. Sunday, I mean, this is in some ways a kind of silly question to ask, but um, I'd be quite interested in your take on this because whenever there's a kind of crunch on uh, student finances, there are lots of loud voices and often surveys that predict that this will impact access. You know, students will drop out, students won't come. And actually what happens every time is they still come, mm. but maybe they just have a rotten time. Is this the moment where it really does start, to, the cost of living crisis actually starts to impact continuation rates, completion rates and access? Or is it that those students will hang on and just have an even more rotten time than perhaps uh, they've had in the past? Mm. I, yeah, I think it's difficult because I think with when you're navigating poverty, it it's not like, <laughs> I think, let me think, it's, there's a, there's a delineation between those who see education as an investment and those who see it as a lifeline. And I think that if you're inside the mind of someone who sees it as an investment and it's costing you money and it's not paying off, it's easy for us to say, 
well, you know, this makes no sense that you'd put yourself into all this debt and, and, and sorry, what? No, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just laughing. <laughs> right. Well, exactly. It makes no sense at all. This is an investment. It's part of your education portfolio or whatever. But in the mind of a working class person, that's a lifeline. The, the, the conditions that you're living in, you're working through them in order to get to a better place, right? Because that's what you've been told. You've been told you come here, you're going to earn more. So dropping out doesn't make any sense because <laughs> if you drop out, then you're going to remain in the conditions that you're currently living in. Whereas if you if you stay, there's there's the promise of graduate employment. So I, I think psychologically, that's where students are at. And I think that's why policymakers who are making these predictions that students will drop out, what they're not understanding is a working class experience or, or the way that the way that we would consider these things. Because obviously to them, it's like, well, this is an investment. This is an investment in my future, um, rather than an absolute necessity in order to escape poverty, <laughs> basically. But DK, this is fascinating, isn't it? Because, because you know, if Sunday's right, and I think, you know, there's obviously, you know, that, ma- that makes lots of sense. If Sunday's right, and there's also lots of pressure on universities to not let people drop out and to recruit, isn't there a danger that, that a whole bunch of people end up in higher education that are getting nothing like the sort of experience they ought to be having and that other students are having, perhaps from a social capital point of view, and therefore actually in the end are being failed and probably would be better off pausing for a couple of years and coming back when the economic circumstances are better. I don't know. Uh, I think this is particularly going to play off. I know I keep banging on about this during this podcast. It seems to be my theme for the day. Uh, Postgraduate taught. Now, um, it's easier to pause a postgraduate talk course. I suspect we are going to see a lot of that when cost of living crisis starts to really hit in October, when people are looking at discretionary spending and thinking, okay, I'm paying somebody £700 a module to do this thing. It's not great at the moment. I'm not getting a particularly good experience, but I have other priorities. And that is going to hit university income really, really hard. Everything is stacked on PG Talk at the moment this year, as we've talked about. In terms of pausing and going back to your studies, the system in the UK is not particularly very well set up to support students in uh, doing that. If you contrast it with a system in the US, which we've had a couple of pieces on the site this week that is exploring the way that works, it is seen as a normal thing that you go part-time for a bit, you pause your studies for a bit, you get like a six-month grace period, and then you have to start repaying your loans, or you can just go back to full-time study and then just keep uh, proceeding that way. We're not really set up to see um, non-continuation as anything other than failure. But in this next couple of years, non-continuation could be exactly what students need exactly to be provided. What? They could come back. Yes, there ought to be targets for more non-continuation. Yeah, yeah, and so on. Maybe yeah, so, well, maybe even, so. You know, even something like, you know, when you are, um, I mean, this is quite a common thing, um, particularly with self-funded PhD students, when you, because, you know, it's incredible, well, you know, the reasons that DK um, described earlier, it's incredibly stressful. But um, when a PhD student is struggling to complete, they're, you know, often um, it's, it's, pra- it's common practice to offer them a uh, master's by research for the research that they've, current- they've already done. Um, so they leave with a qualification and, you know, with the sort of conversations and speculation around uh, a more modular form of higher education, I'm wondering if it's, I'm wondering if something could come out of non-continuation where 
you are awarded, you know, some sort of certificate certification for the modules that you have already completed um, or something like that. Like, I'm not sure if it's common practice, like, but it would yes. it make make a lot a lot of sense then. Um, yes, yeah, interesting. There's, there's there's a whole chapter on this in in Augur, which has kind of been lost to mm. well, lo, lo, lost to Augur. Um, mm. But you know, it, 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 interesting stuff, and, and obviously it might emerge out of very different circumstances. Anyway, lots on the site about lots of this kind of stuff um, as we kind of enter the new term. Some speculation, some thinking about strategy, and so on. All worth a look. Links in the show notes. Now, every week on the show, we delve deep into the sector's past to uncover stories of how things were and how things came to be. With academic registrar and sector historian Mike Ratcliffe, here's the hidden history of AG. One of the phrases we know about higher education is this term, town and gown. It sets up an opposition between the university and the townspeople around it. And this comes from the oldest parts of our sector and, to some extent, has shaped some of the changes all the way from the beginning. The oldest document in the University of Oxford archives is the outcome of the riots in 1209. The university shut down after a bloody conflict between town and gown. Some of the members of the university stayed away forever, remaining in Cambridge. A townswoman had been murdered by a student, and the townspeople helpfully executed a different student in revenge. Membership of the university was key. A key focus of it at the time was theology. So there were clerks. They were in some form of clerical rule, and therefore this fell into that Plantagenet problem of the area of jurisdiction of the king over the church. This king, John, was currently excommunicated, and so it was the papal legate who was put in charge of sorting this out. He sided with the university, granting it powers over the town and putting its members beyond the authority of the town's authorities. Low-level disputes continued. If you look through the letters from the king to Oxford, there's all sorts of things about um, stopping uh, pigs roaming in the streets or stopping people slaughtering in the town because the smell was so bad. But this finally gets to a height at the riot that occurs in, on St Scholastica's Day. In 1345, some students and priests uh, were drinking in the Swindlestock Tavern at Carfax, right in the heart of town, and started to complain about the quality of the wine. The landlord responded to the complaint with stubborn and saucy language, whereupon the student threw a quart pot over his head. Local people came to his aid, uh, and the bell was rung, and the university retaliated by rousing its students to lay into the fray. People came from outside the town to join in, and the riot took on a very, very serious effect. In all, 62 scholars were killed. The riots were severely punished afterwards. The king decided to punish the townsmen of Oxford with an annual ritual humiliation that continued for 500 years. Every St Scholastica's day thereafter, the mayor and bailiffs had to attend a mass for the souls of the dead and to swear an annual oath to observe the university's privileges. They had to bring 62 citizens with them, representing the number of scholars slain, and hand over 63 pence, usually in small silver coins. This kept getting regularised, so Queen Elizabeth enforced this rule and setting out the terms of the um, oath that people would have to swear. You shall swear that truly you shall observe and keep them all manner of lawful liberties and customs of the said university, which the Chancellor, Masters and Scholars of the said university have reasonably used without any gainsaying, saving your fidelity to the Queen's Majesty, so help you God. There was a moment where uh, at least one mayor decided not to play along. Thomas Dennis, the mayor in 1643, decided not to appear and was summoned. But his complaint of why he didn't come 
whilst the original reason was superstitious, and perhaps they often jeered at by the scholars that they had to come and do this act. But it continued. Eventually, in the 19th century, they were let out of having to go to the church to deliver the money and were just invited round to the vice-chancellor's house where they would pay the money in a smaller ceremony. But finally, Mr Isaac Grubb, then the mayor, decides he wasn't going to play at all. He didn't turn up. But the good news was that after a certain amount of um, discussion in which it said that he stated in, in, stated in emphatic language what he'd be before he'd stand it, the university did nothing about his refusal, and the ceremony stopped. There was a celebration uh, to uh, mark the end of this um, process, but that's it. No more trailing the University of Oxford, um, the people of Oxford having to trail to the University of Oxford to give them 63 pence to make up for killing 63 Scots. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Now, DK, tell us about the politics of, of the summer. The, there's the, the leadership election on. Uh, what's been happening? Oh, Jim. So, two... <laughs> Equally talented uh, candidates for the role of Prime Minister slimmed down from a large initial uh, field. We get the choice, the choice which is being faced currently by Conservative Party members between the kind of internationalist, uh, technocrat-ish kind of approach of Rishi Sunak and the uh, continuity Boris Johnson that is Liz Truss. Uh, uh, I'm speaking before the result is announced. Obviously, everybody at this point thinks it's Liz Truss. She's been traveling the country, occasionally coming out with um, absolutely borderline insane policy ideas on literally anything but the cost of living crisis. She has a secret plan on that. She's not telling us until she's elected. I reckon it's the monorail, but, you know, we haven't... We're going to have to wait and see on that one. Uh, so of particular interest to higher education, Rishi Sunak feels like the OFS should keep doing the clamping down on low courses. And then we have Liz Truss, who wants the University of Oxford and Cambridge to interview every single person in the UK that got three A stars in a particular year. I'm not sure 
when those universities were going to find time to do any undergraduate teaching while they're doing that, but maybe it'll all sh- shake down together. She wants once again to resurrect the PQA, PQO conversation. It is truly the stupid idea that refuses to die in higher education. And just seeing her announce that just made my stomach sink again. And there's also a little rumour rushing about that she would like to abolish the office for students, which sounds like something that a large part of the sector might get behind until you realise all of the function of the office student would move into the DFE and become somehow even less transparent and even less open. Uh, So clearly a lot going on there. Um, We think that um, a trust administration, the first 100 days is just going to focus on the immediate problems facing the country. So probably any of the big lifting on um, higher education, stuff like the pending response on the lifelong loan entitlement consultation, the HG reform consultation of the world in which that could be held back. Any machinery of government changes, unless they're directly in the way you'd think also might be paused a little bit. Um, it's all just thoroughly depressing uh, politically in England at the moment, and it's difficult to see a way in which things improve for the higher education sector or for students as a result. Sunday, I'm not necessarily kind of on higher education topic here, but I don't know how you feel about this, right? I, I just, given the scale of the challenges facing the country, this whole summer of zombie government thing, I just think it's really just been it's just felt really surreal it's like an out of body out of body experience and you know god alone knows what that is doing to kind of students and young people's perception of politics you know i I can't even perceive of what people must be thinking this is this is this is the zombie government starting in summer is a complete illusion right it's been a zombie government for quite some time particularly (laughs) the department of education the only reason we think that it's not been a zombie government is because of all the scandals that have come out if you look at those scandals they have absolutely no policy substance do you see what i'm saying like everyone sort of suddenly started saying oh it's a zombie government well actually we've had a universities minister who has you know turned up to to sector conferences and only spoken about you know freedom of speech which uh, you know I'm not going to go into that because we've wasted so many podcast minutes and (laughs) and like and and pixels on the site over this but uh, you know the idea that nothing has happened nothing nothing has just started happening (laughs) in that sense isn't the case this has been the case for quite some time um, now, 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 funnily enough, Sunday, so before we move on, just on Culture Wars, um, anything interesting happened on the Culture Wars over the summer? Has it all been same old, same old? Um, we had that big uh, Times thing, didn't we, in which they uh, did an FOI to every single university in the country who clearly had nothing better to do at that point, and they responded on books that had changed in their module review. Now, I mean, module reading lists change every year. Um, we rethink modules based on student feedback, based on the availability of materials, based on just a, um, new ideas and teacher improvement. Uh, the Times, they managed to find two books that had been dropped. They'd not really heard of either of them, so they had to look into them. Um, one of them was dropped from a module on how to... Uh, structure a novel for um, creative writing um, undergraduate students and there was another one that was a quite obscure play that was dropped from a really really um, basic level one introduction to literature thing but they have managed to get a 
good few weeks of headlines out of that particular exercise. It's, um, quite, it's I, quite interesting, isn't it, that Sunday, right? Because uh, actually, a summer of book ban and trigger warning stories, you know, how serious they are or not is kind of hardly the point. That is different to other years. And, you know, I, I often say this this issue kind of shapeshifts. You know, one year it's all about banned speakers. The next year it's all about trigger warnings. And, and it, we haven't really heard about speaker bans for a very long time now. You know, it's all gone very quiet. Yeah, that's a good point, actually. It they morphs, sort of slowed that down a little bit. I mean, the, the, the thing I'd say about the book, the book issue, because it did actually happen to my alma mater, um, and um, it was on Huckleberry Finn. And one of the things that quite frustrated me about that is um, the book wasn't banned. What they did is they printed the module description. So it wasn't even a trigger warning that they printed. It was the module <laughs> description. And in the description, it said, this book will look at racism, which it does. It looks at racism. And that was the problem that they had in that. And um, it, it reminded me of last summer when they started uh, focusing on the National Trust, when the National Trust would mention race, um, not mention race, I'm sorry, mention slavery. And they would start saying, oh, ban this, ban that. And the National Trust were like, well, no, this building is connected to slavery. We're just, we're just mentioning it. Um, and it was the same with this book. It wasn't that they were saying, oh, well, I mean, they were just <laughs> describing that it had racism in so it's kind of it, it, it it's um do you know what jim it's a chilling effect it's a really chilling effect <laughs> on, on what we are and aren't allowed to talk about um yes. according to the government ideology so it's worrying um i have no doubt that the uh circus carousel will rotate to trans issues perhaps maybe this term or something else that they pluck out of the air um but you're right it just goes round and round in circles and one of the twitter accounts that i really uh uh, like following is an, an academic called Evan Smith and he uh, routinely um, whenever an issue comes out he will post the sort of equivalent article from like the 1960s <laughs> yeah from the 50s and 60s yeah, yeah. right where the exact same issue has come out and it, he just demonstrates exactly your point that this is just a kind of carousel of hysteria that just continuously uh, dulls our brain cells and and slowly bores us to death Yes. Now, uh, uh, not much time left, DK. Very quickly, anything been happening in English regulation since our last podcast in mid-July? Oh, God, yes. Let's talk about the QAA. Uh, sensationally in early August, the 8th of sensationally. August. Sensationally. Sensationally. It literally rocked my world. They turned around and said, um, you know all the designated quality um, body stuff that we're doing for England? It turns out that it's not compatible with us complying with international standards on higher education quality. So we're not doing it anymore. We're walking out. So they literally, I think it came as a shock to quite a few people, but it's been um, a row that's been building for quite a long while. Uh, we are, they're still going to hang on and uh, do the work until the 31st of March next year. They're currently arguing about how much work they can get done during that period and how much they're going to have to charge people in order to do it. But we're going to be without a DQB, one of the principal parts of HERA. Uh, the Higher Education Research Act is that the um, academic standards were supposed to be external and there was supposed to be external expert voice into academic quality. We've lost all that. There's nobody else really that commands the respect of the English sector on uh, quality. I mean, it's um, not like you can just drop Capita or Pearson in or something to do it. It needs a lot of serious expertise, which isn't anywhere else. Um, it's greatly, greatly upset um, the 
LFE, as I understand, who have not been best impressed with the Office for Students anyway. And this is just another thing that they're going to have to sort out. And yeah, so all of regulation now appears to be pretty much in the air, up in the air as regards the basic quality and standard stuff. In the middle of this, October, we'll see the publication of the uh, data dashboards that will under underpin outcome um, registrations measures, that's the B3Bear, and the the uh, TEF. There'll be a huge amount of quite detailed data. There'll be um, thresholds published alongside it. The thresholds we now learn are not hard thresholds. It's not quite as deterministic as it initially looks. So quite what chaos that is going to bring. And on top of that, it's the first year of data futures. So that's a delight for everyone to enjoy. New version of the TEF coming too. So, uh, interesting stuff. Now, next week, we'll look ahead to the, both the term and the year ahead, but that's all we've got time for this week. Remember to dig deeper into anything we've discussed today. You'll find links in the show notes on wonky.com. Remember, you can subscribe to the podcast automatically. Uh, just search for The Wonky Show on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or wherever else you listen. And to keep you and where you work ahead of everything going on in UKHE, pop over to the website to find out more about our subscriptions. So, uh, thanks very much to DK, Sunday, everyone behind the scenes at Team Wonky that helps make the show happen and until next week stay wonky